Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 28th. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we are down to the final eight teams remaining alive in the 2011 Division Three playoffs after a, a bunch of thrilling games on Saturday. Keith, a couple of amazing comebacks. Two amazing comebacks that uh, resulted in victories, but another one that... Uh, Maybe goes a little bit unnoticed because uh, Kane twice rallied from 14-point deficits and yet uh, went on to lose to Salisbury by the score of 49-47 to in triple overtime. Keith, this is a game uh, where coming into the coming into the day we were talking about the defenses on both sides. And, you know, lest, of course, the, the uh, well, I would say the high score is somewhat misleading, but it was 34-34 at the end of regulation as well. There were a lot of points scored even before we started tacking on the extra sessions. Yeah, and, and it's a, a couple of teams where you, you you know what Salisbury is offensively. You know, we know that they run the option, they sprinkle in the pass. They actually, uh, going into this game with the nation's leading team in, in passing efficiency. So, you know, even though they don't throw it a whole lot, they get a lot out of it when, when they do throw the ball. And so you, they had a clear identity uh, offensively. And for Kane, as much as, we, as we've talked about them all season uh, in, in the national spotlight and the type of team that they are because they, they'd been um, up and down. You know, I still didn't have a great feel for what kind of team they were offensively. And I'm not sure Kane established what it wanted to do uh, early in the game. You know, they fell behind 21-7, 28-14, 34-20 at one point in the third quarter. You know, so, so Salisbury, I think, felt like it was in control of the game. And then right around the, the middle of the third quarter, Kane started to get it going, and uh, you know they got a couple of Darius Kinney touchdowns in the fourth quarter. The last one coming in the final minute to tie it at thirty-four. And so uh, you got to remember too that this is at the point on Saturday where uh, five of the eight games kicked off at noon Eastern time, so they're all going on simultaneously. And so you have uh, the the comeback going on at Wesley, the comeback going on, uh, you know, not quite as far along, uh, but but at Wabash and North Central. And then you have this comeback going on and, and, and all at the same time. And so no matter where you were on Saturday, you're trying to keep keep an eye on all these uh, crazy finishes going on at once. And, uh, you know, the thing about this game that stands out, of course, is that the, the Kane scoring the touchdown in the final minute uh, of regulation, the, the Darius Kinney two-yard run, uh, that's almost a forgotten moment because it got even crazier when they got into to overtime. Yeah, they um... – uh, whew, trade touchdowns to tie it at 41, and then of course you get to the uh, you get to the third overtime in which, uh, of course teams are forced to go for the two point conversion. The uh, extra point kick is not an option. Uh, Salisbury uh, converts its touchdown converts its two point conversion. Um, although uh, it would be nice to take a look at some tape on that because it it seems uh, it seems there may be differing opinions. Yeah, and and the way it was explained to me. Uh, w- w- actually via Twitter, uh, talking to the safety, uh, Jamal Williams, you know, he, he said, uh, that he made the tackle uh, he thought, uh, he, he knocked, um, I guess it was, it was a Smedley on the run that he knocked him out of bounds. And, um, the, the official thought otherwise that he'd got inside the pylon. And so even the, the final play in that game, well, not the final play, but the clinching play, uh, in that game was, was somewhat, uh, controversial. So that gave uh, Salisbury in the third overtime the eight-point lead, and then Kane got backed up. Uh, you, uh, one of those moments when you fall behind by eight, and then nothing works for you in overtime, and you're down to your last gasp, and then Kane throws a touchdown pass to make it 49-47, and this thing may be going to a fourth overtime. But uh, but as you all know, you know the rules stipulate that you go for two. Kane had a good shot at it from, from what we understand. Um, 
and uh, and just missed on the pass uh, in the third overtime. And so uh, that's the way Salisbury wins. They hang on and, and win uh, 49-47. But yeah, it, it was apparently a crazy game. And if you ask the folks from Kane, I think they felt like the, the turning point, especially after scoring the touchdown in the final minute of the game, 34 all, send it into overtime to get the ball first, um, or, or they, they win the toss and they elect to play defense first. Uh, Salisbury goes uh, three and out, misses, misses a field goal, and then uh, Kane has, a, has an 18-yard uh, field goal attempt blocked, if, if that's the way I'm uh, – I'm uh, remembering it all correctly, and I'm trying to take a look at look at it here as we. Uh, a, um, yeah, I think it's a little longer than that, but it is a blocked field. Yeah, goal it, is, it, it says thirty. It says thirty-one here in in the box score, but yeah. So, so in, in any case, um, it, it's such an exciting game at that point, and and I don't know how you, you you can't love these overtime rules, and then you you weave in the fact that that we have you know you you win and you go home here in the second round of the playoffs and you have a couple of programs you know Salisbury hasn't advanced this far since their their great run from 86 and and Kane this is the best uh run in school history you have all this riding on the, on the overtime and uh you know I don't know how much of it those guys know at the time they're playing but they certainly know their season is on the line they've played this great back and forth game and you get into overtime and yeah the, you know the first overtime started poorly uh, for Salisbury, the, you know, Eric Hart missed a field goal from 34. Then Billy Daniels, his 31-yard attempt gets blocked. They go into the second overtime, trade touchdowns. And then uh, in, in the third overtime, you have the score, the, the controversial uh, two-yard, uh, or it was Ross Flanagan uh, on, the, on the conversion. Uh, Smedley scored the, the tying touchdown. And then uh, the Tom D'Ambrisi pass. Uh, again, that, they got backed up. It didn't, didn't look good for Kane. They were down there, their fourth and 12, their, their last gasp. And uh, Dan Brisi uh, hit Chris Suazo 27 yards and, uh, and and had a chance to tie the game. And Dan Brisi's pass, I believe, was uh, was just a little off the mark. I, I want to say the, the way it was told to me is that the pass was a little high. Um, but it, it was such a crazy time on Saturday. And, and we're lucky that we get video packages from some of these places and you get to go back and look at how it all happened. And that was one of the places where I really would have loved to have seen and watched, uh, you know, that, that last touchdown in the fourth quarter and then the overtimes and see the, the momentum, the, the, um, you know, the excitement of, of Salisbury when they realized they won, the, uh, you know, being at their home field and all that and all that happening in front of the home crowd would have been a pretty nice sight to see. And uh, we will talk about next week a little bit as well. Uh, I, but some things I want to put in your head for later. Uh, you know, Salisbury gave up a lot of points. Uh, the 47 overall, the 34 in regulation is the, the second most they've given up this year. Uh, so I want to talk about how that, uh, what do you think about that as they go in to face uh, Wisconsin-Whitewater. And that's a game uh, Whitewater beating Franklin. We'll come back to that later as well um, because there were uh, obviously some other exciting comebacks going on, including... You know, the one with the 29 uh, points in the fourth quarter, for example. 22 points in the fourth quarter. The one with the 22 well, that, points, the one with the 20, including the one with the 22 points in the fourth quarter, for example. Well, you know, the, the one with the 22 points in the fourth, in the fourth quarter is, um, is uh, Wabash in North Central. And that, that was really a tale of two halves. But th there was a, another tale of two halves, and we'll talk about that in, in a minute, Linfield and Wesley. And Wesley had, uh, you know, a similar third quarter and fourth quarter scoring uh, three touchdowns in, in each of their uh, the, the final two quarters in the second half. And those were two games where if you're at that point on Saturday, 
you, you're just looking at the scoreboard if you weren't at one of those two games. North Central leading 21-0. Linfield was leading 27-7. And you, and you figure, wow, you know, the teams that were ranked slightly higher uh, may be running away with these games that we thought were going to be great games. And they turned into great games because of the halftime adjustments that were made. You talk about the, the little giants. Uh, they, they went in at halftime. Uh, North Central was able to run the ball on them in the first half. And, and really over the course of the whole game, they finished with 208 rushing yards. But most of that came in the first half. So BJ Hammer gets his defense together and, and, and Wabash figures out they're going to slow, how they're going to slow North Central down. Um, and then they got it rolling a little bit offensively behind Tyler Burke. And, and Tyler Burke is a player for, for Wabash who uh, is making his first start of the year in place of Chase Belton. Someone who, if you read the post-game comments too, Coach Eric Rayburn was saying, they're guys that when they get beat for a starting job, you know, they, they football's over for them. They quit the program. And Tyler Burke didn't do that. And he, he got his moment. And, and he, he had a whole bunch of those moments in, in the fourth quarter. And uh, the, the best of them, of course, came on that two-point conversion play. So, yeah, Chase Belton uh, did not practice all week, apparently. A big knee brace. Uh, and, and, and Tyler Burke is a guy, I think... Importantly, Keith, not just that he got beat out for a starting job, but he's a senior who got beat out for a starting job. And at that point, um, you know, you you may well think, and I I know that there are other uh, you know quarterbacks in Division Three this season who have done this. Uh, you may think your career is over and 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 give up the ghost, and they really really needed him, as it turned out. Yeah, because you know at that point you you need an experienced guy that you can turn to, and if not. If Burke, for whatever he wasn't in experience playing this season, he's someone who knew the program, knew the system, and he got off to a shaky start. Wabash, I think, had I think it was 57 yards of offense in the first half. Uh, two of Burke's first three passes are intercepted, so they didn't get off to a good start. But you know, I hate to simplify it down to this, but football games are 60 minutes, and and, and they're, they're often these runs of momentum. And the team that can withstand it, you know, sometimes it's almost worse. It sounds silly. Sometimes it's almost worse to be the team that gets out in front early because once that other team gets its momentum going, and this is something that you see kind of frequently in the playoffs, you know, the, the, these everybody you play, especially you get into the second round, everybody you play is pretty good. And, you know, Wabash is a team that, that had been tested only a couple times a season, but is an 11-0 team used to having success. And, and of course, they're going to buy in. Uh, when they come out in the second half and believe they're going to be able to make a run. And as soon as it starts happening for them, you know, it just started rolling. And uh, they, they not only did they start to figure out their offense, they started to get North Central off the field defensively. They generated a big turnover, I think, when North Central felt like it was still up uh, 28-14 in that game and felt like it was putting a drive together that, that may uh, put the game away. Uh, instead, Wabash causes a fumble. They drive down the field and score. And then if you listen to the or, or you read the quotes that, that Tyler Burke uh, had after the game, he said, you know, when, when they took the field for the final drive, there's no, no doubt in his mind that they're going to score. And this is a guy who hadn't played, you know, pretty much all, all season. And, and uh, to come to, to build that level of confidence up over the course of the game is pretty impressive from going from two of your first three passes are intercepted to coming out on the field for the final drive knowing you're going to score and then walking the team down the field. And, and, and as I got a chance to look at those highlights, it, on that final drive, it looked like Wabash is a step faster than the North Central defense. All North Central needs at that point is to get one stop, an interception, a turnover, anything to, to, to uh, stun Wabash's momentum, and it never happens. And Tyler Burke leads him to the score. 
and uh, and the two point conversion and and Wabash. I, I think a little bit of a surprise to move on because people were really starting to get on the uh, the North Central bandwagon. And I think uh, you and I can uh, can probably be uh, on that list as well. So um, let's talk about North Central for a little bit uh, as their season ends at uh, ten and two. Um, is is it a little bit too one dimensional? They were very heavily based uh, on the run this year. Uh, you know, one of their big scoring drives in the first half was uh, basically entirely out of the Wildcat. Um, is it you know is it a situation you think where yeah, you know, the team needs to be more multidimensional to compete deep into the playoffs. I know we've always said strong defense and good running game is the is a is a, are two real good important uh, facets of the ball game to, to compete this late. Well, this this would be a terrible season for for me to say that uh, a team couldn't win, you know, with a running style or or a running quarterback because all the teams who advance, uh, you know, half of them at, at this point have quarterbacks who run you. Salisbury's Dan Griffin uh, obviously runs the option, and, and he carries the ball quite a bit. Shane McSweeney, uh, they, Wesley runs a lot of their offense out of um, – it, it looks like read option, but it's a lot of them are design runs for Shane McSweeney. You have Ladarrell Bailey carrying the ball quite a bit for Mary Harden-Baylor. And then uh, you know, St. John Fisher, Ryan Kramer, didn't play on, uh, on Saturday, but he played in the first half of the first round of the playoff game, and he got St. John Fisher to the playoffs. He's a guy who um, – you know, could do multiple things at a multiple look. So he wears number 21. He looks like uh, he's meant to carry the ball, uh, not throw it. And uh, so, so that can work. Yeah. And uh, I would say, I would say Matt Blanchard and Dakota Tracy for Whitewater and St. Thomas kind of belong on that list too. So, I mean, in, in a season of spread, spread offenses and, and, uh, Teams that like to, you know, to, to get down the field, throw the ball, you know, uh, McMurray probably being the, the most prominent of those and, and Monmouth, uh, you know, another team that lost on Saturday, um, <clears throat> you know, has a great quarterback and, and, and loves to throw the ball down the field. You know, Linfield was another one. They made they they made Wesley defend the entire field uh, the way they use their offense and their quarterback, Mickey Inns. He, he, he threw for over 400 yards against Wesley, but it was it was swing passes, shovel passes, intermediate passes, go routes, fades. It was everything on the, on the route tree, uh, everything an offense could possibly draw up. And, and it certainly uh, tested Wesley's defense for, for a little more than a half. Um, there's more than one way to win in the playoffs. And I don't know if, if, if we're strictly critiquing North Central, we could say that, that their lack of uh, um, you know, offensive style or identity or, or saying that they're just one dimensional it w- was really the problem. I think they, they got figured out. It, it has to be, you know, in the second half when you go from doing basically whatever you want in the first half to, to not, um, not gaining hardly any yards at all in the second half. Um, that, that's part of what happened. And, and I know they got, they, uh, they had a, some turnovers that, that gets you in, in a tough situation. Cause when you're trying to, quell that momentum and when it gets rolling you know Wabash was playing at home and that's one of the great places to play uh, in, in Division 3 and, and maybe the best home site uh, on, on Saturday I mean, maybe Perkins Stadium uh, for, for Whitewater is, is another great place to play games but you know you get that momentum going and the little giant crowd is getting into it and and all North Central needs to do is put together one scoring drive to, to, to stop that momentum and they just never could do it and then the turnovers happen and, and you get that pressure on you, you go three and out and, and all of a sudden the other team starts rolling and that, you know, from being able to watch the, the replay of the game, I mean, I, you see that's what, what, what happened. Yeah, so as you're describing that, 
I'm thinking about the game you were at too. Uh, for a second, I, in fact, I, I wasn't sure exactly if you were talking about the Wabash North Central game or the Linfield Wesley game because it seems like a lot of the things you said over the last three or four minutes uh, could apply to that game as well. Well, it certainly did in the case of Linfield and Wesley, and uh, they the the getting figured out, having the turnovers. Uh, in, in the second half and then having that home crowd get into it and the team get rolling. And there, there were some people, I think, who speculated that Linfield having all that, the, the cross-country travel and the game kickoff at what felt like to their bodies um, be 9 a.m., you know, that that caught up with them in, in the second half. I think from my point of view, you know, they, you just get caught in, in the buzzsaw a little bit. And when the other team starts rolling and, and all of a sudden that lead that you had, you fall behind and you start to press a little bit, you know, I, there was actually one point in the broadcast where I said to Frank Rossi, I said, you know, the, the worst thing Linfield could do right here is try to, you know, they, they fell behind 28-27 after they'd been leading 28-7. The worst thing they could do is try to get it, uh, you know, panic, try to get it all back at once. It's, it was, at that point, it was an even game, and they had fallen behind, and it was the same thing. You know, at that point, they, they, the offense had been working for most of the day, and the worst thing they could do is panic. And then it got to a point where they, they really needed to, to open it up and press and actually panic because they, they fell that far behind. They, they just couldn't get any, any stops. And um, the real turning point in that game, you know, the more I look back at it, was, was uh, there, there's, I guess, two turning points. Um, but but the, the big one was even after Wesley got back in the game, uh, Linfield started uh, – Wesley actually uh, – went for onside kick, and they had it. They, it was there, but the, the kick was too strong. So the, the Wesley, the Linfield kick team bailed out, and the ball just went, it bounced right over and went out of bounds. And so Wesley had, had risked it to try to get the momentum back. They're still trailing at this point. This is right after uh, Wesley returned the interception 99 yards for a touchdown. All right, so the, the, that's really the turning point in the game. Um, Linfield... Even though Wesley gets right back in the game with a, uh, with a, they, they, Linfield fumbles the kickoff. Wesley turns it into a, a touchdown in sixth place. And, and Linfield starts to put another drive together, is get, gets all the way down the field inside the, uh, the, the five yard line. And Mickey Inns throws the pass. Uh, Leon Jones, um, Wesley had blitzed. Jones comes off his man a little bit. And Jones, at that point in the game, had, had been a cornerback. He was having a little bit of a rough game. Uh, he got beat for a touchdown at the end of the first half. He had a pass interference call. And, and he just comes off his man, uh, sees the Mickey Inns pass, uh, passes a little bit off. And uh, Jones intercepts it at the one-yard line. Gets a great block from Jeff Morgan, one of those kill shot blocks. And then he, he starts to slow down as he's running down the sideline, waiting for some more of his blockers to get in his way. There's another block that happens. Uh, he hurdles over that guy and, and runs in and, and scores a touchdown. And at that point, it, it, it's a huge momentum turning play, but, but Linfield is still leading. So Wesley tries to capitalize uh, on, on the momentum by going for an onside kick. They didn't get it. And then Linfield has a uh, short field. You know, they, they get the ball to 50-yard line at that point, and uh, they, uh, they gain a, a couple first downs, but then end up having to, having to punt. Big sack uh, by Paul Gilstrop and Jeff Morgan uh, on that drive and uh, on third down. And, and honestly, at that point in that game, Linfield had been so successful on third down the first half, and, uh, and, and Wesley was 0 for 6, that uh, that was really uh, one, one of Wesley's um, problem areas at that point in the game. But it just... You know, the, you, you can read the box score. You can ask people who were there. It, it, it's hard to explain just how a team that, that has so much success in the first half 
gets caught up in, in that buzzsaw and is all of a sudden never able to 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 do anything uh, in, in the in the third and fourth quarters. I didn't see any major adjustments that Wesley made defensively. When you asked Mike Mike Drass in the post game, he said, "You know, we didn't do anything uh, all that different. You know, mostly they just tackled better." And in the first half, on Wesley's five scoring drives, um, excuse me, on Linfield's five scoring drives, Linfield uh, scored three touchdowns and had had they kicked two field goals to begin with, then scored three touchdowns. Each one of those drives had a big play on it, and uh, a lot of those big plays were short, intermediate passes. Uh, or, you know, different a couple. One was a run play, and uh, they just Wesley didn't tackle. And, and some of it, you got to give credit to Linfield. Josh Hill made a, um, you know, a great run right up the middle. It was a stretch play, and then he found his seam, got up the middle for a long run. Uh, he turned a shovel pass. He had, he had a nice move in the middle of the shovel pass. Should have been, you know, short gain. Uh, breaks a couple tackles. And turns that into a big play. Swing pass turned into a big play. Uh, a slant should have been about a 20-yard gain. Missed tackle makes it a 60-yard gain. So Linfield was was successful offensively because they're, they're making Wesley defend the whole field, defend the whole playbook. You know, they're, they're pulling out shovel passes and all these uh, crazy things. But at the same time, Wesley was just tackling poorly in the first half. And, and if you want to say, what, what did they get fixed in the second half? They tackled better, and then they got that momentum. And once their offense got rolling and Linfield didn't, uh, it, it really uh, it really caught up with them. And let's talk about Shane McSweeney, too. I, I know we you mentioned him earlier, but just to, to read down the numbers of what he actually did on Saturday, 16-22 passing for 259, four touchdowns and interception, and then he ran for 174 yards and two more touchdowns on, on 27 attempts. That's, uh, you know, 433 yards of total offense, if my head is correct, and makes uh, makes him, you know, possibly the best uh, individual performer on the field at any uh, in any Division three game on Saturday. Yeah, and if you ask the players at Wesley, that's what they, that's what they want. They want that guy to lead them, and uh, the coaches feel that way. They they believe in him so much, and part of the reason is is because he's um, you know, the quarterback, and, and and he's a nice passer, and he's a you know emotional guy. But part of the reason too is just that you you see on on so many plays where he gives himself up for the team, and uh, and by that I mean they they run the ball with him a lot, and and he's not the type of quarterback that slides, not the type of guy that goes out of bounds. He spins, hits for extra yards. Most teams will go, we're trying to keep bodies off our quarterback. We don't want him to take hits. Wesley's like, you can't tell Shane McSweeney not to take hits. That, that's, he's not built that way. The guy is a safety or a fullback that can also throw the ball. And the, the way he played on Saturday w- was like that. You know, he, um, he's, so, he's so confident out there, he actually changes the way Chip Knapp calls the game. Uh, in, in all honesty, and I talked to Chip a little bit after the game about, about some of these things where uh, there, there was plays that were sent in that, that Chip, he said, this is a touchdown. You, you, you know, you got to run it. And, and Shane said, no, no, we got we, we to run the ball here. And, you know, quarterbacks and, and offensive coordinators, when they get to that point where they have a great rapport with each other and they each trust each other, it, it certainly bodes well for the offense. But, um, you know, the, the thing about Shane McSweeney, he's not just a running quarterback. He's not just a passing quarterback. He can do both things. He's a very confident guy, and Wesley believes in him. Uh, the, the team, re- when he plays well, then they play well. And one last thing, a lot of talk uh, coming into the game, and, and not just this week, but in previous weeks and in previous years, was um, 
you know, lack of discipline on the part of Wesley and how that manifested itself in terms of penalties. And it looks like they played a, a fairly penalty-free game on Saturday, just four penalties for 30 yards on the afternoon. Yeah, a couple of them were, were pass interference calls. One of them was pretty clearly pass interference by Leon Jones. One of them I thought was a kind of a either way call on DeKivis Howard. But they're those are the type of penalties that you can I don't want to say excuse, but um, they're not they're not mental mistakes. They're not guys getting in bad situations, um, losing their temper or anything like that. Wesley didn't have any of those problems. The type of game that that Wesley played was. Um, you know, the, the type of game most coaches want to see where once things get rolling, the, the, the good emotion comes out and the team channel that emotion into, into, um, into its play in the second half and never let it get out of control. Um, there, there were a, a couple things that, that really stood out. Uh, so actually so much about that game that, that stood out. And I know we got some other games to talk to, so we should, we should jump over to those. But, you know, the, the thing I want to point out is that what uh, Linfield – it's, it's just a shame that this was a second round game as much as we love to see that matchup and we were excited there were so many exciting second round games you, you know north central and linfield going out in this round kane you can throw them in that group too these are teams that are probably going to finish ranked in the top 10 you know if maybe the top 11 if you got the eight teams that are left and then those three um it's amazing to see those teams are home because they're I think Wesley feels like Linfield was the best team they played all season. Uh, I think Kane and, and Salisbury, you know, they, they each played Wesley, but those three probably feel like they're all the, the best teams they played all season. And uh, Wabash and North Central uh, had quite a bit of mutual respect between them. So that, that's the thing about the playoffs. Great teams, their seasons end on, on a sour note. And, they, and some of them, because we had these, uh, this mixed-up bracket and these great second-round matchups, uh, they, the seasons ended early. And it is hard to believe, as good as Linfield was, as good as North Central was, that those teams are out of the playoffs. But on Saturday, Wesley and uh, Wabash just a bit better. And as, um, you know, as I'm sure, for example, that with three minutes left in the game, Wesley was not 22 points better than Linfield this season. Similarly, uh, I think uh, Linfield fans might now have uh, some reason to reconsider going back to that 2004 national semifinal where Rowan got in a plane, went all the way across the country and got crushed 52, nothing. Uh, I'm sure that Rowan was not 52 points worse than Linfield over the course of the 2004 season. And I, I'm sure that the, uh, the cross country travel had to have at least a little bit, something to do with that. Even if it's not, uh, even if it's not the entirety of the final margin, but I'm going to move on to, uh, the, the good game as it were in the other bracket, the, uh, well, the Delaware Valley bracket, the one in which Delaware Valley got knocked out on Saturday by St. John Fisher. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get this out of the way now, so you can say your piece. The the team that Keith didn't think belonged in the playoffs is in the round of eight. And it's it's not the first time we've seen that happen. Uh, you go back to 2008, Wheaton, you know, had to have a whole bunch of things happen on week 11 for them to. Get, for a spot for them to open up in the playoffs, they were they were an eight and two team uh, from a power conference. Uh, they they got in, they won three games, and and St. John Fisher is two thirds of the way toward doing the same thing. And and the thing that that stood out, I guess, about St. John Fisher during the season is that they, they didn't play well in their biggest games. They got beat fifty six twenty by Hobart. They got beat forty one twenty one by Salisbury. And uh, you know, in hindsight. Hobart performed pretty well in the, in the first round of the playoffs, losing by seven to Wesley, a team that's still alive. Salisbury's still alive. You know, in, in hindsight, 
you take another look at that St. John Fisher schedule and, and you can understand why they were able to outplay a, uh, a Johns Hopkins and a Delaware Valley because they were tested during the season. And even though they didn't look so good in those tests, and if it would have been up to me, uh, I wouldn't. I don't think they would have been the, the first eight and two team I put in the field. They got in and they took advantage of uh, of their opportunity. And and you have to give them credit because um, they've gone on the road twice. And these aren't you know short road jaunts from upstate New York over to Massachusetts. They went uh, down to Maryland and then down to Pennsylvania. A pretty significant um, trips you know and, and and bus trips and they're going to have to make a, a plane trip now uh when they go out to Minnesota this week. And then the other thing is Ryan Kramer the, the quarterback played uh the first half of the Johns Hopkins game gets hurt uh on a run inside the 10-yard line, hip flexor. They didn't know all week whether he was going to play. Ahmed Hassanian has to go again this week and he's a guy who's a backup and even though he's a, he's a confident guy or he was in in the post game uh when I talked to him a little bit after uh after the Johns Hopkins win. He um, still, you know, he's been back up all season and he's got a completely different style from the starter. And instead of letting that be a hindrance, you know, St. John Fisher has embraced that and turned that into a positive. And, and, and um, I mean, the big the big story besides Hassanian on, on Saturday having another fairly decent game uh, at Delaware Valley, I think, was the turnovers. The, the margin in that game, five to one and uh, Delaware Valley's freshman quarterback, Aaron Wilmer, throwing four interceptions. And uh, just to go back to something you said about a minute ago, it's not just Hassanian was not just the second string quarterback all season, but he was a third string quarterback coming into this season. Remember that Ryan Kramer only ended up being the starting quarterback instead of a running back because of, of an injury back in the preseason. Yeah, and and so the, these teams now you're, you're twelve games in, and the the best teams, the teams that are still standing, are the teams that adjust, adapt. And, uh, and, and take what would be adversity and turn it into an advantage. You know, you can say the same thing about Wabash, right? They, they had to start a guy who hadn't been their quarterback on, on Saturday. He leads them to a big comeback in the second half. Uh, you know, you, you could say it about McMurray, who had to won the, they won their first round playoff game with a, with a different quarterback and then uh, had to come back and, and go back to Jake Mullen this week and, and play Mary Harden-Baylor. I mean, there are uh, quite a few teams left standing that, uh, that, that took – uh, lemons and made lemonade. To, to be honest, you know, the, cliche. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, you know, I know neither of us really likes cliches a whole lot, but we end up over the course of an hour, uh, and we are using a whole it, bunch of them. Yeah, well, we have to. I think occasionally, once in a while, we're about halfway through. Uh, presumably, if this ends up being an hour podcast, and, and we've dealt with uh, one of the games in each bracket. I, I wanted to touch quickly before we left. Uh, this game on Delaware Valley. Remember that they were a, a team that at the beginning of the season there was a lot of doubt about. They turned over, you know, 90.9% of their offense in terms of, uh, you know, losing 10 out of 11 starters. And, and even though, um, you know, the they don't live up to their seating here in the postseason this year, I suspect that they're going to be uh, continue to be strong again. And maybe this is a, uh, a second revitalization of Delaware Valley after a couple of down years. Yeah, I think the future is bright for the Aggies. And, uh, you can't once they step back from from the hurt of the of the loss on Saturday, they can't be anything but proud about the season. You know, when you lose your entire unit, your, your entire starting team from from a, a Delval team that was a playoff team the year before. Right. You know, but but didn't but but wasn't, you know, lost the last game against Widener, got, you know, beat Salisbury in the first round, but got sent on the road to, to Mount Union. And, and uh, that was the end of that last year. 
And then they figure, okay, we well, we lost a whole bunch of our seniors on offense, and so it's going to be a down year. And instead, they became the kind of program that, to use another cliche, instead of, uh, what is the, the reloading <laughs> they, one? Yeah, what instead of rebuilding, they reload, yes. <laughs> right, that cliche. See, I don't even, I don't even use <laughs> cliches. I, I, I don't even know when to drop them in there and when to let it go. But but to be, I mean, that's that's a great sign for a program when when you have the guys in the program and you're recruiting the freshmen that can, that can um refresh you and make you a playoff team every season you know you have to tip the hat to the coaching staff uh at delaware valley to get those guys um ready and you know the mac wasn't it wasn't an easy league this year either you know it wasn't an easy conference to win in there was you know four or five teams uh that, that ended up winning six or seven games you know lebanon valley lycoming widener uh albright all those teams were tough so it wasn't like delaware valley just got into the playoffs um you know, by luck, they had to earn their way in, and then they, uh, you know, had a big win in the first round. And so, you really do. Uh, I, I feel that 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 the uh, the future is right there, and that when they step back from this a little bit, you know, you never want to lose a playoff game. You don't want to lose on your home field, certainly to a team you feel like it, it comes in ranked lower than you. But um, but it but it's a pretty good year for them, and, and to get an offense with that many new parts to play as well as they did for as long as it did it, it is pretty significant. Let's uh, turn around back through the uh, bracket and kind of back our way through. Uh, we just talked about uh, St. John Fisher. They advanced to play St. Thomas. St. Thomas defeated Monmouth on Saturday by the score of 38-10, to 10. Um, a, a game in which yeah, uh, a lot of things uh, went right on, uh, on the St. Thomas side on, in terms of defense. Uh, St. Thomas coughed up the ball, uh, three fumbles and one interception on Saturday, uh, which... Uh, helped lead to uh, both of Monmouth's scores. They scored on a seven-yard drive and on a uh, a thirty-seven-yard drive, which was which was a one-play touchdown pass. Um, Alex Tanny, uh, who's you know, of course, as we've mentioned in the past, uh, is the all-time leading passer and all-time leading touchdown thrower in Division Three football history. Um, went nineteen to thirty-five passing. He was sacked five times. Um, re- reminiscent, I guess, of. Uh, a, a previous Monmouth trip to the playoffs in which uh, Alex's older brother, Mitch Tanny got sacked by St. John's 12 times in an opening round game. Um, you know, Monmouth clearly is, has made some strides and, and Alex Tanny was a much better quarterback over the course of his career than, uh, than Mitch Tanny was. But uh, when you get to this level, um, you know, you're, you're going to be facing some defenses that are pretty good in the, you know, the offensive line that may be able to protect you in the uh, Midwest conference may not be able to do the same thing in the second round of the playoffs. Well, the the thing we've seen, you know, with the case of Alex Tanney and we saw it with Dubuque and, and certain other, um, you know, teams over the years is that you can have that one transcendent offensive player, that, that guy that helps you win, uh, you know, when all the chips are down or whatever the go-to guy. Um, but, you, but good teams win this deep in the playoffs and, and not just good good units. You know, you can have a nice a nice stable of running backs or a nice passing game or something like that. But you have to have a good offense, uh, sharp special teams and a tough defense. And, and I, I jump back to the Wesley game because it, because it fits, you know, when Wesley was down at the half, they generated a turnover with their special teams on the, on the opening kickoff. And uh, then their offense scores and they get a defensive touchdown. And then the offense starts rolling. And it, it was a, it was a team win, you know, and, and they, they were getting dominated as a team by Linfield in the first half. And, and they were able to turn that, turn the tables and have that 42 point, uh, 42 unanswered points. You know, that Monmouth, Alex Tanney, probably 
uh, as good a quarterback as, as we've seen in a few years in, in D3. You know, we, we had that year, I think, 08, where there was, you know, five or six great quarterbacks from from uh, from Jason Boltus to Juan Joseph to Bobby Swallow, Chad Rupp, all those guys. That was a great year for quarterbacks. Greg McKaylee uh, from Mount Union, you know, and, and then Tanny's really been the standout quarterback of this entire season. And, you know, we talked about Darrell Bailey and Shane McSweeney and some of those guys. And those guys may finish the season as the standout quarterback. But Tanny is the guy who's got the NFL chops. Uh, you know, he's, he has got the all-time, a uh, couple of all-time, you know, passing marks, and not just Division three marks either, you know, all divisions marks. Um, he, he, he is good enough to lead a team deep into the playoffs, but ultimately you have to have the supporting cast. And, and, and those guys, when you talk about getting sacked five times, those guys let them down a little bit. The one guy who I thought, you know, you look at the stat sheet, you think had a pretty good game would be uh, Tanny's favorite receiver and Mike Blodgett. 12 catches, 151 yards, um, and, and a touchdown. But, Pat, you pointed out to me when we were talking uh, before we started recording that, that Blodgett had a couple of key drops early in that game. Yeah, there was a, so there was a point in this game early on where uh, you know, St. Thomas is, was turning the ball over, uh, was, was getting its first downs, and then you know, coughing the ball up uh, you know, in, in bad spots. And, and then... Uh, and, and Tanny was getting uh, was getting pressured and getting rushed, but he was he was getting his passes off, and there were a couple of uh, a couple of just yeah mindless uh, mind numbing drops is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Blodgett is one of them. He has the ball in his hands at a uh, on a uh, on a on a on a route that could have given him 15, 20 yards, and it goes in and out of his hands. But he made up for it later. He made a great catch for the uh, 37 yard touchdown. He made a a really athletic catch uh, over the middle, which um, you know, it was one of Monmouth's uh, first first downs of the day, maybe even their first first down. It was a long time before Monmouth got a first down, um, you know, because they, they, they went out pretty quickly on offense. The other thing is Monmouth um, is uh, it runs a lot of no huddle and a lot of hurry up no huddle as well. So they were kind of on and off the field pretty quickly. The, uh, the first half at one point uh, time of possession was uh, 16 to 6 in favor of St. Thomas. And I think eventually St. Thomas was just able to to wear them down. They ended up with 391 yards on the ground. Colin Tobin had 258 of those. And, uh, you know, eventually the backups came in and, and finished the game. Um, and you also, you talked about special teams play. Um, so they go to half tied at 10. Come out in the third quarter and uh, St. Thomas gets the ball, but they're going into the wind. And I, I did the, uh, the stats say the wind was 10 miles an hour. I don't remember any point during the day the wind being 10 miles an hour. It was uh, during the game between 20 and 30 pretty consistently. Um, so the, the Tommies were going into that wind in the third quarter. And uh, so uh, also Monmouth uh, kicker has has the wind at his back to kick off to start the second half. So it backs the, the kickbacks, Waldvogel, Fritz Waldvogel, uh, back to the goal line. And he takes it and goes 100 yards uh, for the touchdown. I think, I, I think to be honest with you, he wasn't even touched uh, to – to put the Tommies up 17-10 and, you know, basically, uh, I don't say start the route, but, you know, they they scored they outscored Monmouth in the second half 28-0. It's another game that maybe didn't turn on a special teams play. I believe St. Thomas would have worn them down eventually anyway, but certainly he gave them a little bit of a spark. Well, but, and it goes back to the, the point we were making, though, Pat, is that, you know, to, the deeper you get into the playoffs, the more complete your team has to be for it to, to continue to advance and, and to get those plays on special teams to get those um, the ball moving on offense for St. Thomas. You know, it wasn't just uh, 
Colin Tobin. He had the, the, the sick numbers, the 39 carries, the 258 yards, 6.6 um, yards a carry. You know, those are the numbers that stand out. But Fritz Waldvogel has 148 yards receiving and, and then adds the 100-yard reception, uh, not reception, uh, kickoff return in there. You know, uh, Dakota Tracy, not his best game, but, uh, but, but takes care of the ball for the most part. Um, you know, there's just the one interception. I know, you know, he had to put the ball on the ground at, at one point in that game. Um, but the, those are the things you need to do. And then you, you talk with the St. Thomas defense. You know, I, I don't those guys name wise to me because I haven't seen him play as, as often as you have. Pat, the names don't stand out. But but as a unit, I, I think of that as a, as a team that's tough to move the ball on. And they proved that in, in the second half when, it you know, it was tied at the half. And then they end up winning that game going away. 38, 10, you know, the more. Uh, you could point to the St. Thomas performance and say they got the job done offensively. If the back runs for, for 258 yards at, at six yards to clip, uh, the offensive line had a pretty good day. If you get a touchdown on special teams, the special teams had a pretty good day. And obviously the defense hold team, uh, a high scoring team off the scoreboard in the second half. Uh, they had a pretty good day. And so you had a com- complete team in St. Thomas and, and maybe one that, that, that can play another couple weeks here. And to put some names on some of these uh, on some of these guys, so they're not so they don't continue to be uh, no names. And this is, I guess, my fault because I have seen these guys, I think, four times this year now. Uh, Tremaine Williams, uh, linebacker, a sophomore for the Tommies, uh, had three sacks on Saturday. Uh, Willie Barigi, fellow linebacker, he's a senior. He's been the you know a part of their defense for quite a while. Chitty Oji, a, a cornerback, is a, a guy who. Moved into the starting lineup late in the regular season last season and played in the playoffs at the at corner for the Tommies. He's uh, he was back for his junior year this season and has been a a standout corner uh, for them this season as well. Those are some of the guys who uh, lead the St. Thomas defense and uh, will do so against St. John Fisher in the national quarterfinals on Saturday. Crisscrossing the bracket, we uh, back up to see who's playing Wesley in the uh, national quarterfinals, and you know, no surprise uh, at some point. You had to figure Wesley was going to play Mary Hart and Baylor because it seems to happen more often than not when you, uh, by the time uh, these two teams get this far in the bracket. Well, we were excited a couple weeks ago because it was a different looking bracket. You know, it felt like they threw all the teams in a hat, shook up the hat and said, pick, pick out some good ones and then pick out some less strong ones and match them up. And uh, it doesn't matter how much you mix this thing up. You know, you, you, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. If we're going to put a cliche on it. Um, there you go. You still, you still have you still have Mount Union and Whitewater alive in the final eight, and you, you have the annual matchup with uh, with with Mary Harden, Baylor, and Wesley. Uh, Sean Green said it in in his D three report. You know, it's not the South Region anymore. It, it was a national bracket. You know, co- going from Hobart all the way out to um, you know from New York State all the way out to Oregon, and and yet you still have uh, you know Texas. And, uh, and and Delaware getting together, it's really an annual thing. Um, but between Wesley and Mary Harden Baylor, and they've developed a nice rivalry, especially nice for uh, for Wesley because all their their rivals, except for Salisbury, all their rivals are are, are uh, off their schedule now. The uh, the thing that stands out, I think, about Mary Harden Baylor is um, you know they just they've been so sound. Over the course of the year, remember it, Pat in some of these early podcasts we were talking about. We we weren't sure what kind of Mary Harden Baylor team it was. This is a team they they've just gotten stronger every week. You know, um, defensively, I, I think they they've played well enough. You know, they're not in the stratosphere with with Mount Union and, and Wabash and Wesley and some of the defenses that have been ranked in in the top ten 
all season. St. Thomas is in that group, but they're sound enough defensively and they're able to run the ball. And, and when you talk about Mary Harden Baylor, it's very similar to when you talk about Whitewater over the course of four quarters, you know, is your team going to be able to, to stop 40 or 50 runs from another team? I mean, that's the, how much the, that team's going to pound on you. And uh, Mary Harden Baylor, you know, sometimes their scores are close early. This game, you know, it was, was 14, 12, early in the second quarter and uh by you know you, you get later in that quarter and, and early in the third quarter it's a two score three score game you know uh mary harden baylor just wears teams down i think part of the reason we uh we had those questions early on in the season is because mary harden baylor was uh experimenting with uh running a bit more of a more of a offense out of the pistol rack getting away from some of the things that they've been very successful with over the course of the past decade or so, and they've really gotten back to those things that you talked about. They they ran uh, 63 times, for example, on Saturday, and that's just a you know that's a that's a lot of pounding. And you, when you can spread it among you know the the three backs that they were able to do so, uh, Darius Wilson, the of course the running back with 29 carries, Bailey the quarterback with 15, Elijah Hudson uh, came in for uh, 11 carries himself. Those are the kind of things that uh, that that gets you success this time of year as well. Yeah. And I mean, that's just tough to defend 63 runs. You know, you, unless you have two whole defenses that you can sub in and keep your guys fresh or, or they're just some of the toughest guys ever, ever built. Uh, that's a, that's a lot of tackling, you know, and uh, some of that of course was in the fourth quarter trying to protect the lead, but this game, Pat, um, at one point is a 28, 20 McMurray, um, trailing and so within scoring distance you know um jake mullen had led a 10 play drive right before right before uh this this turning point early in the fourth quarter so he leads a 10 play scoring drive it's 28 20 and then mary mary harden baylor scores on a um a fumble return uh and then uh puts together a quick drive and then uh the last touchdown comes on an interception return and so the, the game got out of hand a little bit there it was actually a good game for a while but over the course of a game, they, they really do wear teams down, and, uh, and that, that's when those mistakes start to be made. And uh, so, so uh, McMurray's uh, last game in Division Three is a uh, a loss in the uh, second round of the NCAA playoffs. You know, I think we knew Keith that McMurray was going to be pretty decent this year. At least we had reason to suspect so. Uh, I just don't I don't know if we thought that they were going to go out with uh, as much of a bang as they did. Yeah, it was impressive, and and to be a little. Uh, to be honest, I, I kind of miss them because it's nice to have um, uh, a team that's you know put is exciting from week to week. You know, you, you don't know exactly what you're going to get, but they put up a lot of numbers. They became competitive, and it wasn't always a competitive program. Although it's a school that, in a lot of sports, was was competitive, and it's in a great location in Texas when you in the same city as, as Harden Simmons, so they could get a nice rivalry going uh, in, in one of the you know the more fun conferences. I think. Uh, in Division Three in the American Southwest, when, when in terms of from year to year, uh, every team since we've been doing this, Pat, every team in the American Southwest has been competitive. Uh, you know, six, seven wins at least at, at one point uh, over those uh, over those ten years. And so McMurray was really the only team that had always been a doormat. You know, Sol Ross hasn't had that many good seasons, but but uh, they finally came up and, and uh, they got a they got a coach who runs an exciting offense, and we wanted to have him around. Uh, but but they went ahead, went ahead and went off into D two land, and it's kind of satisfying, I guess, um, a, as a D three backer, you know, to see that our best are are, are still better uh, 
uh, and Mary Harden Baylor does send uh, McMurray out. But it, it was kind of a shame because it looked like there were there were going to be some nice rivalries developing between McMurray and Louisiana College, uh, McMurray Harden Simmons, and then McMurray and Mary Harden Baylor, and uh, there'll be there'll be one down in the ASC next year. I hope uh, I hope McMurray finds what it's looking for at the Division Two level. Good luck to them. Uh, Wabash in the uh, bottom right hand of the bracket. They advanced and they will play Mount Union, which defeated Center by the score of thirty to ten. Keith, this is a game that was uh, was close for a while. I, I heard descriptions of uh, this being a game which Center played to keep close rather than played to win, and they certainly did keep it close. And they were only down by six with um, well twenty three minutes left in the game, and they were down by uh, two scores all the way up until three minutes left. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what kind of um, stands out if you're a longtime follower of D3, which, of course, if you're listening to this podcast this far in, you probably are. You know, we're so used to Mountain Union winning and winning big that when they just win normally, it's kind of weird. Uh, you know, this is their 20th season in a row now in the quarterfinals. We always pencil them in this deep into the playoffs. You know, you almost assume their first two opponents are, are automatic wins, but they, hey, hey, they can't afford it. Hey, Keith, yes. it's not pencil. Yes. It's not pencil. <laughs> it, 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 to get them into the quarterfinals 20 years in a row, I, I'm going to upgrade to Penn maybe to a permanent marker. I mean, then they've earned it, but at the same time, part of the reason, the reason they earn it is because they don't ever jump ahead. You know, they, they, they take Benedictine seriously in the first round. They take center seriously in the se- in the second round. And so when we see a score, uh, 16-10, Mountain Union leading, you know, uh, with 11 minutes to go in the third period. Again, you know, we're all at different games, but you're looking at that score. Like, does center really have a chance to, to win at Mountain Union in the second round? And part of it is, is just the way uh, Mountain Union is built this season. I think they're built on defense. They're they're number one across the board, scoring defense, total defense, rush defense, and and, and so that's the they play to their strengths. Part of it is they dealt with injuries. Uh, Jasper Collins played for the first time in four games on Saturday. He's probably their best wide receiver. Uh, he caught a touchdown pass at the end of a 16-play, 97-yard drive at the beginning of the game. They uh, were back and forth at quarterback between Neil Seaman and Matt Pilato. They're they're now. Uh, Pilato's been at the helm for, for a few games now, but they, they've had to deal with injuries. Um, they've gone you know, back and forth at quarterback, different running backs emerging in different games. And so it, it, it hasn't been a perfect season for Mountain Union in, in the sense that some of the seasons they've been so dominant that, that you, know, you can't imagine uh, things going any, any worse. But some years, these Mountain Union has had to struggle. This 12-0 that they've got has, has not come uh, easily for them, and, and we have to tip the hat to them. You know, we maybe don't give them enough attention because we're so used to them winning. But this is a pretty impressive win for them on Saturday. Had to grind it out, play well in, in, the, in the second half. You know, not, they don't always have to play all four quarters, but, uh, but they had to on Saturday. And I guess you could tip the hat uh, to the center as well for giving them a good second-round game. We talked about some of the injuries that Mountain Union has faced over the course of the season. Uh, Jeremy Murray, uh, you remember at the end of the season last year, he kind of tailed off a little bit. Uh, he only got five carries on uh, on Saturday. He's been nicked up quite a bit, and I understand uh, that's probably why he didn't get as, as many carries. Uh, uh, Blair Skilleter came out and had a, a nice game in relief. He had 18 carries for 78 and a touchdown. Jake Simon with 10 carries for 44 and a touchdown. Jeremy Murray's been such a... a uh, a stabilizing force in that backfield all season. And if he, uh, you know, 
if he can't take the pounding of a 15-game season, you're going to remember that... Um, I know I just cut myself off in mid-sentence. I'm sorry, but you got to remember that you this is a this is a long season. There, it's longer than uh, you know the the uh, the FBS seasons. They play their 12-game regular season, then they get you know four or five weeks off before they go play in a bowl game if they're in a major bowl game. That's a lot of time to to heal injuries. These guys are going after it week after week after week. There's no first-round buy for teams like Mount Union anymore, so they've played 12 games in these 13 weeks, and it takes a lot to take. Uh, the pounding, the way that uh, you know that Nate Kamick and, and, and Chuck Moore and Dan Pugh and the other uh, you know special Mountain Union running backs have been able to do. Yeah, and and you know we, we got a, uh, at least one other special running back that we'll uh, we'll get to in, in a minute here, but who's been able to take the pounding over the course of the career, and, and and it's led him to Salem quite a few times. You know, the last thing that really jumps out from the Mount Union um, you know score is. Uh, the team put up 30 points, scored in each quarter, but but only generated 189 passing yards and 135 rushing yards. So really, for some of the numbers that we saw on uh, on Saturday, you know, Linfield quarterback throwing for 400 yards, Shane McSweeney having um, 400 yards of total offense, the 250-odd rushing yards for, for St. Thomas running back. Some of the numbers were through the roof. So some teams had to win, had find ways to win, and Mount Union was one of those teams. You know, total offense, you know, barely over three hundred yards, and uh, and still scored thirty points. Yeah, just looking at uh, you, you've made a, a reference to Lavelle Coppage, and we will talk about him in a second. Uh, Jeremy Murray's uh, game by game rushing totals for the course of the season. Uh, you know, keep in mind this is twelve games. Uh, 20 carries, 20, 12, 41 against uh, Ohio Northern in the that 14 to 6 game. 11, 26, 19, 23, 28, and 21 to end the regular season. 17 against uh, Benedictine and, and just the five on Saturday against center. Taking a look over at uh, Lavelle Coppage, uh, in, a, in a situation where he was the only uh, running back coming back from last year who had, had any uh, real significant carries for the Warhawks. Uh, 21 carries in the opener, 18, 15, 30, 15, and then 22, 28, 29, 36, 27, 20, 26. It, it actually seems like it's it's been pretty consistent for Coppage, but there are uh, some games early in the season where they certainly could have let him get 20 carries or, or 25 carries, and maybe he would be closer to Nate Kamick. Where I really think he's he's just too far off the uh, he's too far off the pace to catch Nate Kamick for all-time leading rusher in D3 history. But uh, it seems like. The workload's certainly been different for those two guys, and uh, I, I think Coppage has proven in years past he's been able to handle it, and they've also, uh, I thought, maybe taken it a little bit easier on him this year at Whitewater. Sure, because the goal for Whitewater is not to have the uh, the all-divisions leading rusher of all time. The, the goal is to win the Stag Bowl and to keep Lavelle Coppage fresh, You know, to, to, to give them their best chance to do it. They, they need to have Lavelle Coppage be able to, get those 20 carries in November and December when they can wear teams down over the course of the game. You know, they, they, they've developed into a, um, over the, over the past six trips to the stag bowl, they've, they've been a multifaceted offense. They've always had a threat in the passing game. They've had a quarterback who can either get the ball down the field or, or move it with his feet. Um, and, and it's been different players from, from each year. But when you have a, a great player, you want to be able to, to ride him in November and December. And Larry Karras did it when he had Nate Kamick and Chuck Moore and Dan Pugh and all those guys. Um, and, and, and Whitewater does it with Lavelle Coppage. You don't 
want to burn them out in September when you know you're going to win those games. Uh, not every program has that luxury uh, of, of knowing it's going to, it's good enough to win without getting the most out of its best player. But, but for, for Whitewater to advance, they, they have to use, you know, they have to, they, they, they can afford to save coppage. And I think this year offensively, because Mount Union, uh, the offense doesn't measure up with some of the offenses of the past, uh, they didn't have that luxury. You know, they needed it to, to get all they could get from Jeremy Murray early in the season. But you mentioned the 14-6 game, you know, the Baldwin-Wallace game. They needed everything they could get out of their offense um, to, uh, to to get to the playoffs this year. And so they, they couldn't really afford to take it easy. They, they've been so good defensively. They, they've carried, you know, the defense has, has maybe at times even carried the offense. And uh, they did a great job again on Saturday against the rush center had 1.7 yards per rush. So, you know, they, they make, they make the other team one dimensional, the defense carries them. And uh, if Mountain Union doesn't have um, a player like Lavelle Coppage, you know, like what, like Whitewater has this year, they're going to have to find a different way to, to keep on advancing. And uh, first they have to go through Wabash. And so uh, Whitewater with the 41-14 win against Franklin. Uh, it mentioned that Lavelle Coppage is now the uh, number two leading rusher in Division Three history, 7,381 yards. He passed R.J. Bowers of Grove City, who was a, uh, uh, a fullback for the Wolverines from uh, 1997 to 2000, played a little bit in the NFL uh, after his uh, collegiate career was over. Coppage is still almost 700 yards short of Nate Kimmick, so I, I think that catching him is out of the question, especially with some of the teams that uh, they have yet to face. And let's take a look back uh, now, or forward really, at, at what's coming up in our national quarterfinal games, Keith. And I'll come back to this question I was talking about with Salisbury earlier, uh, giving up 34 points on Saturday to Kane, 47 after the, uh, after the overtimes. Um, Salisbury put up a, a ton of yards, but they gave up a, a ton of yards and a ton of points as well. Well, you know, Salisbury impressed me uh, against Wesley. Saw that game, uh, you know, late in the regular season, and I felt like they, they physically, you know, matched up well with Wesley. And does that does that mean they can physically match up with Whitewater? Hard to say because Wesley hasn't always matched up, um, you know, along the lines, especially against Whitewater. And that's where Whitewater uh, has dominated every team in Division Three. I think uh, on, on the offensive line and defensive line, and so uh, that's going to be a problem. But that's how Salisbury's built. You know, they're 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 built to rush. They're built to pound over the course of the game. So I think this is one of the more intriguing, um, you know, third round uh, quarterfinal matchups for Whitewater in, in in their run of dominance here because it's a team that's not going to be, I guess, overwhelmed or intimidated um, by a whole lot of run plays. You know, that, that's all the defense sees in practice. That's all the offense does. So. I, it's going to be interesting. You know, you, you don't think Salisbury is the favorite by any means, but it's it, it's tough for Whitewater. I don't know if they have to prepare for an option offense anymore since River Falls switched to, to a spread. You know, so it's, it's going to be um, a lot of learning in practice this week, and it's hard to replicate it with the scout team to see how quickly uh, Salisbury hits the line. But, but I think the flip side is also the same. Salisbury's going to have to figure out how to stop Whitewater's run game. And uh, it, 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 pound the rock is, is, gonna, is always the theme at Perkins Stadium, and, and it will be more so this week when, when Salisbury comes to town. 
And we've talked about it multiple times over the course of the season, Keith. But, uh, you know, a, a Whitewater fan who, who may kind of mentally tune us out when we've talked about Salisbury, you know, the previous 12 weeks of the season now has to listen and uh, pay a little bit more attention to it. And we want to point out that uh, unlike a lot of triple option teams, unlike some of the, the successful Springfield teams of the past, the Salisbury teams that have gotten to the playoffs, uh, this is a team that actually has, I guess, a creditable passing game. I, how would you describe it having seen them play? Yeah, I mean, I think they can hit big plays when, when they need them, and that's the uh, that makes them dangerous. They lull you to sleep. You get so, as a defensive player, you get keyed in on uh, on reading your keys. And, you know, if it's the if it's certain option plays, whether it's you know pulling guards or just just um, you know reading the reading the play as it develops, it's. Um, you, you, you start to jump the gun a little bit as a defensive player because you're so – everything Salisbury does is so quick hit that as a defensive player you have to be able to read and react. And you start to – and Salisbury offensively will use that against you. They'll use your reactions. They'll, they'll get you into that over the course of the game. They'll run the same thing, look in the same way five or six times, and then the seventh time uh, it's not what it seems. It's a pass play, and there'll be a tight end running down the middle of the field. And if Dan Griffin can hit those guys in stride, they'll hit Whitewater for a few big plays. You know, Whitewater, one of their claims to fame uh, defensively over the past couple of years has been able, has been, you know, being able to to get pressure on quarterbacks with their front four. That's not going to be really a big deal in this game because uh, Salisbury's passing game is not drop back passing. It, it's all be, it will, a lot of it will be predicated off option looks. But will they be able to to use their front four to stop the run? You know, will, or will will they be will those guys? Will they are they going to? start pushing up. I mean, obviously the linebackers will have run responsibility and safeties will have it as well. But are those guys going to start creeping up toward the line? And if they do, will Salisbury be able to sneak somebody behind them for a big pass play? The the, the Seagulls, we mentioned it, you know, they, they come in number one in the nation in passing efficiency, so they don't throw the ball a whole lot. But when they do, they get something out of it. They don't have a lot of incompletions or turnovers. That's a big deal too. I think they have uh, 17 turnovers going into last week's game. Only one of them was an interception all season. So when they throw the ball, it's uh, it's usually a good play for them. And that's pretty good ball security for a, a triple option team. Usually, when you're uh, when you're flinging the ball around that much in the backfield, you tend to lose a few more than uh, 16 of them over the course of a season. Um, the other uh, quarterfinal in that half of the bracket: St. Thomas against St. John Fisher. Uh, you, St. Thomas gets the home game because, uh, despite the fact that they're the only, uh, uh, they're in the only bracket where number one seed didn't advance, uh, they they get the uh, they get the home game. They were essentially the two seed, as far as we know, et cetera, et cetera. I, maybe we've beaten that horse a little bit too much in this postseason, but uh, so St. John Fisher, uh, you know, gets the call, gets a gets on a plane to make this trip as a program. You know they're uh, they've been at this level before. Uh, they've certainly faced uh, tougher opponents as a program, but the, those games against uh, Mount Union were quite a while ago, and even the regular season game, uh, the last one of those, I believe, was in two thousand eight. Yeah, but I think the thing you know you, you can apply to St. John Fisher and also to Salisbury is that the way the Empire Eight was this year, with, with so many strong teams uh, playing each other, those those teams hardly getting a week off, and, and obviously a week off, they had an opponent, but they they didn't really have very many easy games. Looks like it, it's actually paying dividends for them, and because both of the teams uh, that 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 they'll be playing this week are teams that love to run the ball and love to play sound defense, and so those, you know, these aren't going to be um, 
wide open passing attacks in any of these games on this side of the bracket. You know, we got rid of the, the Mamas and the McMurrays this week. You know, and the, the, the type of game it's going to be and type of Saint, game that St. John Fisher has to be ready for it is, is a physical game and uh, a game where they, they're going to have to stand up to it over the, the course of four quarters. But I think that's where they've excelled so far in their first two playoff games. You know, their offensive line, uh, as far as we know, was dominant against Delaware Valley. And I know, you know, I saw the first round game against St. John Fisher. They, they pushed, pushed Johns Hopkins around. Uh, in the first half of that game, and we're able to do what they, whatever they want to do run-wise, and then get creative offensively. You know, when when they when they have a Saini in the passing quarterback in the game, so they'll give St. Thomas a bunch of looks. But but St. Thomas, uh, as we talked about about a half an hour ago, you know, they're a pretty complete team in, in all three phases of the game. So it'll be a tough matchup, and uh, maybe one of those ones that neither team hits thirty points, but um, but it is is a good game nonetheless. We've gotten a little bit more uh, than an hour into this podcast without mentioning that uh, Larry Karras will be coaching against his nephew on Saturday when Mountain Union takes on Wabash. It's just one of the uh, you know one of the plot lines to this game. It, these teams uh, met once in the playoffs in 2002, uh, seemed to be on a collision course in a uh, in a, another season until uh, Capital knocked Wabash off. But uh, you know. Um, you know, Eric Rayburn is a guy who came up through the Mountain Union program, and there are a bunch of them. There are a bunch of uh, coaches in Division Three like that. Two of them in the uh, OAC, and I and I I know that, um, and I've read that Larry Karras obviously does not like coaching against these guys because he certainly has to respect the hell out of them, and and had knows has known these guys for decades, and now has to uh, you know coach up a way to beat them. Yeah, I mean, part of it is he's fond of those guys that came through his program. Uh, you know, he, he helped. He's you, you lose count of how many guys he's helped get their start in coaching. Um, not just guys who are Division three head coaches, but guys who are assistants, guys who who are working in the, in the pros, guys who are all over Ohio high school. So part of his legacy, you know, he he got his three hundred fifteenth win against Center. So he passed Amos Alonzo Stag and, and Eastern Kentucky legend Roy Kidd. Uh, moved up the the all-time coaching wins ladder. That's part of his legacy. The amazing winning percentage, the 10 national championships are part of his legacy, but maybe a greater part of his legacy. And, and, and you'd have to ask Larry this, but I wouldn't be surprised if he said, you know, the, the, the thing he enjoys the most is seeing the players he's coached go on to successful lives. And a lot of them uh, as head coaches, Eric Rayburn may be the most successful uh, of all those guys who, who've come through Mount Union. And as we mentioned, they're, they're all over the place. Dean Paul at Ohio Northern and, and Mike Hallett at Heidelberg. Uh, both those guys have, have powerful winning programs now, uh, especially with Heidelberg being 8-2 this season. But um, I don't know if any, any ex-Mount Union guy, uh, maybe, maybe Sirianni at, at Washington Jefferson, I don't know if anyone has won more than Eric Rayburn has. You know, he, he won at Coe. And he's turned Wabash into a winner. And certainly, you know, the, the win over North Central um, is, is a big deal for, for that Wabash program. And, and I think right now that that's a program that uh, a team, they, I'm sure they're going to go into Mountain Union feeling like they don't have a lot to lose. They're riding high. They feel like no matter how bad it gets on Saturday, they can come back and win because they rallied from a 21-0 deficit. You know, as much as the pressure will be on Wabash, it's also going to be on, on Mountain Union. And if... Mountain Union has been saving anything. If they've been, um, 
they got anything left in the arsenal, you know, they're not going to be able to save it for Salem this year because they're going to need it to get past Wabash. Eric Rayburn, 39-6 and six at Wabash, 96-32 and 32 overall as a uh, collegiate head coach, all of them at the Division three level, as Keith mentioned, at Co. and uh, at Wabash. And then the uh, the, the final quarter, final game is that uh, Mary Hart and Baylor-Wesley game, which uh, you know, we, we mentioned already these teams have uh, faced each other fairly often, and they're certainly uh, programs that have a, a healthy dose of, of respect for each other as well, but I think quite a bit of familiarity as well. Yeah, I mean, there aren't going to be a whole lot of surprises in this in terms of what the teams like to run. You know, they know each other pretty well. I think they get along as a staff. And it never seems like bad blood between these two teams. They have a lot of mutual respect. And the games have, have flip-flopped. You know, sometimes they're in Dover. Uh, sometimes they're in Texas this year. It's going to be Wesley going down to Texas. But those that's not going to be a big factor for them because Wesley's had to travel a bunch this year. Um, you know, they know their way around belt and where they want to stay and all that stuff. So it's just going to be about uh, X's and O's and, and which team plays better, which team captures the, the, the momentum. You know, there may be runs on either side of the game. Um, I think, though, the, the, the interesting thing is that as well as these two teams know each other, you know, Wesley is sort of a different team than it's been in the past. Yeah. And uh, even maybe then it was early this season. I mean, I feel like they're they're like they're definitely been inspired, um, you know, since the, the the whole thing went on with uh, with Ben Knapp. And, and again, talking to Chip a little bit on Saturday, you know, he said um, Ben had, had made some strides and um, had, had smiled a little bit and laughed on Saturday morning. And then there, there was a point at halftime in the game where he kind of thinking – to himself, man, this is tough. We had such a, we had a little bit of a breakthrough this morning, uh, not football wise, and then here we are uh, getting getting crushed in this game. And uh, turns out, uh, you know, they won, and, and so Wesley ha- has a lot going for it. It's an inspired team, but I think X's and O's wise too, they're 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 different than some of the other teams uh, that have gone down to Belton because of uh, the way they build that offense around Shane McSweeney. You know, 174 rushing yards, Pat, uh, on on Saturday, your quarterback. Doesn't often lead you in rushing, but then again, Mary Harden Baylor is capable of the same thing. True, although uh, I would have to say certainly in different styles. Uh, last year, this uh, was a quarterfinal game as well. Wesley uh, won that game 19-9. Uh, Justin Sodler was the quarterback last year because McSweeney was hurt, basically missed the entire season. So it'll be a, a completely different look, I think, in terms of obviously what's uh, going on under center for Wesley. Uh Tell us a little bit about what, if anything, we know right now about Chris Mays, uh, the uh, defensive end for Wesley, who was hurt on Saturday. Well, it, it didn't look awful uh, when it happened, but when 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 uh, I asked uh, Chip that uh, when we talked, he, he said uh, it doesn't look good for him play, to play next week. He was standing at the post game uh, prayer. With, with the Linfield players, Wesley and Linfield got together at the middle of the field and, uh, and all talked. Chris Mays w- was there on crutches. He had a big um, bag of ice wrapped around his knee. And so I, I thought the fact that he was, you know, he walked off the field uh, with a little bit of help, but he wasn't putting a lot of pressure on, on his right leg. Um, but, it, but it, you know, he didn't need to get carted off or anything. I thought that may have been a good sign that he, he might have a chance to play this week. And, and I think Wesley will have to see. But uh, it sounds like they, they may not be able to play with him this week. And, uh, and if he can't go, they, they lose their heart and soul on defense. 
I mean, he's, he's certainly been a star for them since he was a sophomore, if not freshman. Um, but I think maybe against Mary Harden Baylor, if, if you can lose a guy and, uh, you know, you know, Mays plays the run pretty well, but he, his, his biggest impact sometimes is, is as a pass rusher. That may be a team where you can get by without your best pass rusher. And uh, Wesley will just have to defer to some of its uh, its other defenders. You know, Paul Gilstrop is a big force uh, in the middle of that defensive line. Jeff Morgan and Mike Asadu at, at the linebacker spot. Those guys have, have been starters now for a couple of years and, and each can make big plays. You know, the, the weakness of the Wesley defense at times this season has been the secondary. That's something that, that Mary Harden-Baylor may not test as much. Wesley will have to tackle a lot better. Than, uh, than they did in the first half against Linfield, uh, against Mary Harden-Baylor, because, you know, those, those guys will make you pay. They'll miss Chris Mays either way, but, uh, but you know, the way Mary Harden-Baylor offense is styled, I think the pressure is going to be on, um, you, know, you know, the linebackers and the interior of the defensive line as much as it would be a defensive end. And uh, what's coming up the rest of the week here, of course, uh, on D3Football.com, uh, a lot of our regular departments still, we will still have... Uh, was we, there are not a lot of plays or not a lot of games this past week, but uh, certainly some very good candidates for play of the week. Uh, we only have one of them in hand right now, but uh, hopefully we'll get a couple others uh, so that uh, you guys can look at them as well. Uh, we will have uh, Road to Salem features throughout the week as we uh, get you ready for the uh, national quarterfinals coming up on this upcoming Saturday. Um, the Gillardi Trophy Committee has uh, promised uh, online voting again this year, so uh, D3Football.com visitors will be able to essentially cast one collective ballot for the uh, for the Gillardi Trophy. Those ten finalists were announced uh, early last week, and uh, you will get a chance to take a look at the uh, credentials again for each of those ten guys. Cast your ballot, and then uh, you know we had. I think more than 10,000 ballots cast last year, and basically they take most votes down to least, and that is how the uh, the ballot is ranked from uh, 10 to 1. Uh, wrapping up the all-region team nominations, uh, nomination period formally closed on Sunday night. However, uh, we will look over the names uh, here on Monday and make sure that uh, we get uh, a final, final reminder out to anybody who might still be missing because we want to make sure that everybody has a chance to be considered. We were over 700 nominations already, which was uh, you know, good. We're looking like we're going to be on par with previous seasons there. I wrote a, a quick blog post about that as well. Uh, if you're uh, looking at us on the blog, you scroll down and find uh, some of our previous posts. You can see uh, that you know there are some positions where you know, as a player, you might feel you don't get a whole a lot of respect. Uh, you know, there are positions where you, you can't even necessarily maybe get respect from your own school. If you look at the number of uh, players at some positions who were or, as it were, weren't nominated, uh, it is, uh, we're always looking for more quality defensive tackle nominations, more guard nominations, often more safeties even. So we will take uh, Monday to make the, uh, the final push for those. Our uh, voter panel will look at it over the course of the week, and then we will announce all region teams early next week. And then all American teams will get announced on the Stag Bowl pregame show December 16th from Salem, Virginia. So for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman, uh, coming in at a cool hour and 15 minutes. That's the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 28th, 2011.